We get an extra Sunday of Advent, I suppose, uh, this year. And in our series that uh, we've been doing on the gifts of Christmas, we began by talking about uh, the Magi, the wise men. Um, They gave their treasures, right? Uh, Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, And then you get another scene of the shepherds out in the field. uh, And they gave... They gave their attention, for sure, uh, and we, we really get a vivid picture of the emotions that ran high um, when the angel appeared and proclaimed glory in the highest. Uh, they gave their hearts. Uh, they immediately went and, um, and worshipped. Uh, we looked at Joseph. He gave his honor, his dignity to what everyone else around them would have thought was a scandalous pregnancy, uh, and he gave his honor to cover her shame. Uh, And then Mary. Um, Last week we talked about how Mary just, she gave everything. She gave her body on behalf of the the conception. She gave um, her body with regard to just the pain of childbirth. As we think about what did Jesus give? Uh, All of those four characters, those people um, in the nativity scene, all are pointing us to Jesus. How he gave his treasure, how he gave his heart, how he gave his honor, his dignity, how he gave his body uh, on the cross. Now, as we look at uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning, please open up to chapter 2, and I want to read verses 1 through 7. Please stand in honor of God's Word. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would bless your word to us this morning. We pray that you would bless us, especially this this Christmas day, that you would remind us that you have come to be with us, our Emmanuel, to tabernacle among your people. Would you bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Pause for effect. Um, have you seen the, the new Star Wars movie? You know. What's the scandal? What's the scandal over the movie? No crawl, right? No, no opening thing where all the, the words go back. Um, you know, in the beginning of all the Star Wars movies, that crawl, uh, this little, little introduction a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, um, gives us a historical setting. In Star Wars' case, a very historical setting, a long you know, time ago. Um, this is a long time ago, too, and I want you to see that you could sort of say, um, you know, that a long time ago in a Galilee, Galilee, you know, far, far away, these things, these events uh, that we read about specifically in verses 1 through 5 give a historical setting to the nativity, to the birth of Jesus. 
um, there's, there's a question, right? I mean, maybe you've wondered, um, maybe you are wondering, or you know family, friends, coworkers who wonder about, you know, what, what is the real nature of this book? What is the real nature of the nativity account that we think about at Christmas? Is this, is this legend? Is it, uh, is it a fable? Is it propaganda? Is it somebody spinning, you know, something that happened a long time ago that we've all lost the details to, but now they're just using it for their own sort of spiritual, religious, you know, institutional pur- purposes? Uh, the church, you know, capital C, et cetera. Uh, these, these are not uncommon questions, but there's a big difference, a very big difference. Just just from the narrative perspective, just from the, the, the literature, you know, if you're just an English student or an English professor, there is a big difference between chapter two, verse one, the first three words, in those days, so a huge difference between that phrase, in those days, and the phrase, once upon a time. Once upon a time introduces us to something that's fictional. It introduces us to a specific genre of of literature that's fiction, that's a story, it's made up. It's a fable, it's a fairy tale, it's a, you know, a a Western set in space, whatever the case may be. But then you get to an expression like this, in those days, and you get something that is not fictional, but fact. It's intended to be fact. It's literature that's communicating something that's, well, that's documented. It's a chronicle. And that's exactly what the author of this gospel, Luke, is intending us to understand. He goes to great lengths to introduce historically and uh, and to verify the facts that he's recording. If you were to turn back one chapter, the beginning, very, very opening words to Luke's gospel, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We're not sure if Theophilus was a somebody who had um, commissioned this, this document, the, the Gospel of Luke, or if this was, um, you know, what role exactly Theophilus has. We don't know anything more about him. But that Luke says that you, Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Does that sound like somebody who's introducing a fable? a nursery tale, something that we, you know, would illustrate a beautiful book and sit around and just, you know, talk about, oh, what a sweet story. Uh, Luke is writing as a doctor. We know that about his background. Um, You might think about him uh, like the way a doctor would write up uh, somebody's medical record, you know, somebody would keep their medical chart. A doctor is not going to put in a bunch of of fluff. He's not going to put in a bunch of ancillary stuff just to make it sound sweet and and syrupy or, you know, more robust than it needs to be. A doctor's goal is to record things accurately 
so that a proper diagnosis can be reached, so that a proper treatment can be found. And if you think about what would a doctor do if he were writing history, if he were a journalist, if he were giving an account, a chronicle of something that happened in time and space, then you might easily see how Luke in chapter 2 in our passage here in verse 1 says, in those days. And then he goes on to talk about the history, the context. This is not a mythology. This is not legend. This is something that's anchored in real time and space with real people. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Joseph and Mary, real places like Bethlehem, real places like Jerusalem, etc. Francis Schaeffer once said that God is there. He is not silent, but rather he has made himself known to us in space and in time, and in history. Uh, I want to focus on a couple of these people that that Luke is mentioning. I want to focus on a couple of the places just so that we can get a sense of the time and the space. Let's talk about Caesar Augustus, first of all. This isn't legend, right? This is a historical figure who is well-documented, right? Historically, well-documented. Nobody argues or, or, or doubts the fact that Caesar Augustus was a real person a real Roman ruler. Uh, he was born in 63 BC. He died in 4 AD. Uh, so he had a long rule. In fact, he was uh, the, 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 um, the great nephew of Julius Caesar and was adopted. Um, basically, when Julius Caesar died, uh, everyone was surprised to hear that the empire basically the, was turned over to Augustus. And Augustus was a, a very savvy emperor, um, Caesar, as they started calling the rulers after Julius Caesar. Uh, he is the one responsible for the Pax Romana. Uh, he was responsible for all of the building projects in Rome. He's um, reported uh, as saying, I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Uh, Augustus was um, uh, also prominent, um, and we think about him every summer, especially right at the end of summer in the month of August, because Augustus thought so much of his own rule that, uh, like his predecessor, Julius Caesar, he took the, uh, what w- would have been uh, the month of um, the seventh month, no, the fifth month, uh, and he changed it to the month of August. Uh, it was supposed to be the six-month sectilius. And Julius, uh, we now have the month of July because that was uh, quintilis. You know, so you ever wonder why we have September, uh, number for seven, October, eight, November, nine, December, deca, ten? Well, it's because there were ten months in the calendar prior to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar comes along and says, you know, I think I'll, I'll name a month after myself. Um, <laughs> And then Augustus does the same thing. I think I'll be like, you know, dear old dad, adopted dad, and name a month after myself. He's a real ruler. You don't doubt the existence of Augustus Caesar. Quirinius uh, was governing Syria at the time. He was born in 51 BC, died in 21 AD. Um, Tacitus, Josephus, other extra-biblical sources document the the existence of Quirinius. Uh, In fact, 
the existence of Quirinius brings up something curious because he wasn't um, the governor of Syria. He wasn't appointed governor of Syria until 6 AD. And, um, and, and I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here because I want you to understand historically how real these people were because it's actually uh, the, 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 the disparity between the death of Augustus in 4 AD and Quirinius becoming the ruler in Syria in 6 AD, where you've got this two years in between where Augustus is dead. Quirinius doesn't become ruler in Syria until 6 AD, two years later. What does our text say? Our text says that when the the first registration, when Quirinius was governor in Syria and Caesar Augustus was ruling, right? Is that possible? How can, how, can a, how can a census be taken when uh, Quirinius governing Syria happened two years after Augustus had died? And this, this is a place where people point at the Gospels, point at the Bible and say, aha, you know, see, we knew that you can't trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions and unreliable historical stuff or whatever. All right, that question, just that question, wouldn't be valid, wouldn't be asked unless people understood the historicity. There is historicity here. Real time, real space. Otherwise, who would care? I mean, who would, who would bother to ask the question? Oh, well, so what? If there seems to be this, this conflict, this chronological conflict. Now, um, to you know, assuage any kind of concern about, is there actually some kind of chronological conflict here? Actually, no, um, because legitimately, with, when you look at the Greek construction of verse 2, it's legitimate, it's proper, it's okay to translate it. This was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And, um, and Luke, later on in Acts chapter 5, mentions uh, the actual census that took place when Quirinius uh, was governor, and there were riots because of the nature of the census and so on. Um, more detail than you need to, to think about. But I do want you to see, A, even skeptics appeal to the historicity of the Bible to try to prove their point about the contradictions that are there. But the contradiction doesn't have to derail anybody because it's perfectly legitimate to look at the census happening over multiple years. Um, things took a little bit longer back then. And then the Greek construction, actually, grammatically, it's okay to look at this as having sort of a broader time frame, possibly even before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Two real men, right? Augustus, Quirinius. You got two real places as well. Nazareth, this, what is Nazareth? Nazareth is um, a backwater little village, nothing special. There's no trade routes, there's no interstates running through it. Nobody goes through Nazareth Nazareth on their way to somewhere else. Nazareth has to be a particular destination because it's a dead end. But it's a real place. And and so is Bethlehem. Six miles from Jerusalem, 90 miles from Nazareth. That's how far, you know, Mary and Joseph had to travel. Bethlehem still exists. You can still see it on the map today. Uh, And it is the city of David because when you go back to, uh, to Ruth in the Old Testament, that's where Boaz was. That's where Naomi and Ruth uh, traveled to. And, and Ruth and Boaz marry, um, and they become the great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents 
of King David, who was born in Bethlehem. Uh, real places, real people, genuine time and space. And all that to just simply point out the fact that this is not a legend. You can't put it in that category. It's not once upon a time. It's in those days. And that Luke, later on, and you can look in chapter 2 at verse 10, when the angels tell the shepherds, um, hey, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Uh, again, there's that word news, which is a different genre, a different category altogether than, hey, we bring you advice. Hey, we're bringing you a, a fun story, you know, just sort of a romantic tale to enjoy at this time of the year. They're bringing news. They're bringing news of something that happened historically that's going to change the world forever. And they don't announce to the shepherds, um, hey, cheer up, we're bringing you some good advice about how you can avoid being naughty and start being nice and get on God's good list, right? Um, that, that's not what they're conveying. They're not sharing something helpful that's going to make your life a little bit easier. They're sharing news and they're declaring something that's happened. And so that's why I'm, I'm laboring this point a little bit. Historically, this is reliable. This is news. This isn't a fable. It's not advice. And uh, listen to what Tim Keller says regarding um, the historicity here. But the essence of other religions uh, is advice. But Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It's joyful news. Not a legend. It's not advice. So if it's real, if, these, if the facts are real, if they're reliable, if they're historical, then, then what? What, what, should that, what impact should that have on us today, this Christmas 2016? When we think about Jesus, we think about what, you know, his life, think about what he gave up. Um, Jesus, you know, chose to be born into political manipulation. He gave up his power and his authority as king of kings, right? He chose to be born uh, to powerless parents um, in their poverty, in their, you know, sort of at the mercy of whatever somebody tells them, all right, so what, Mary, you're nine months pregnant, you got to go travel 90 miles on the back of a donkey. Um, no power, no rights, just completely at the whim of an emperor. And Jesus chose that. He gave up all of these things. Um, he chose to be born in a stable. He chose to be wrapped in the swaddling cloths. I like, you know, this uh, image on the front of your bulletin, an Italian author from the 16th century. That kid does not look happy. Um, <laughs> But that's what they used to do. They would wrap the kids and swaddle them so that they're essentially motionless. The thought initially, medically, was that that would help with their posture and you know, help them stay erect or whatever as they grew through those initial months. Um, and I can remember you know, when our kids were little, just wrapping them as tight as we could just to kind of you know, keep them from flailing about. But um, uh, Jesus was born into all that. He gave up so much. He gave up everything in order to come and tabernacle with us, and he spared nothing. And in his adult life, we see him traveling without a home, without possessions, without 
without much in his wardrobe, uh, to be sure. And how did he end his life? Um, through betrayal, uh, giving up his security, giving up his protection, giving up, um, giving up his back uh, to be whipped, giving up his beard to be pulled out, giving up his head to have uh, a crown of thorns placed on it, giving up his body to be crucified. He, he gave everything. John Stott says that he was misunderstood and misrepresented and because and became the victim of men's prejudices and vested interests. He was despised and rejected by his own people and deserted by his own friends. He gave his back to be flogged, his face to be spat upon, his head to be crowned with thorns, his hands and his feet to be nailed to a common Roman gallows. As the cruel spikes were driven home, he kept praying for his tormentors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Such a man is altogether beyond our reach. When you think about it, nobody outgives Jesus. Nobody gives more than Jesus. Nobody outgraces Jesus. You ever thought about that? You can't outgive Jesus. Which, if that's true, means that we need to kind of check our hearts when we start thinking and feeling, um, I do it, you do it, we start going, hey, when's it going to be my turn? And you start, you start getting a little bit, um, you start to chafe. Like maybe God's asking too much from you. You keep, you keep serving, you keep serving, you keep you know, giving yourself, you keep pouring yourself out for your family, your friends, you keep, you know, working hard, you keep trying to, you know, walk the good walk and stay out of trouble and just do, the, do your duty and it just seems to be getting you nowhere and you start wondering, what's the point? When's it going to be my turn? When are people going to start giving to me? This feels unfair that God would ask so much from me. When you look at all the things I've given up, all the things that I've sacrificed, all the things I've done without, God, why, why aren't you blessing me? Why aren't you returning the gift? Why aren't you returning the favor? And which is a very dangerous place to be because what that leads to is it just makes us angry, it makes us bitter, it makes us depressed, and most of all, it makes us forget that God has never stopped giving to us. The problem isn't that he's not giving enough to us. The problem isn't that we're giving too much. The problem isn't that we're outgiving God. We've just lost our capacity to see his gifts. When you look at Christianity and think that, you know, the way to get blessed, the way to be with God, the way to make sure that I'm going to, you know, go to heaven when I die, however you look at the afterlife and whatever blessing looks like, um, we get in the weeds when we start looking at at how to do that, how to please God by trying to compete with him and to give as much as him or to, you know, certainly give more than everybody else. Um, when we, you know, you've got a few of these on, maybe under your tree today. Um, this, is, this is to me from, from Lydia and Kathy and, and Charlie, our dog. Looking forward to opening this in a little bit. Um, when I grew up, and maybe this is, maybe you're, you, you've experienced this, there was always, it was, it was hard at Christmas because, uh, and it still can be difficult. Um, my family, I think, you know, they're, 
they're doing the best they can with what they've got, but what, one thing that's difficult for us um, at Christmas time especially is there seems to be this competition about outgiving one another. You don't, you don't want to be outgifted. Like you want to at least give something that is as much as, if not more than, what you've received. It makes for kind of a difficult holiday sometimes. It makes for some shame and embarrassment when you, know, you hand them you know, the Jello of the Month membership and, um, and you get something a lot better. Um, but don't we, look at, don't, don't we look at our relationship with God that way? I have to give him enough. I mean, I, you know, all right, we're not going to try to out-gift God. You don't out-gift God. But you sort of feel like, I've given enough. I should get some recompense. The problem is we stop remembering that he never stops gifting us. We're never without. We're never without gifts. We're never without blessings. We, just, we lose the capacity to see because we, we forget to see Jesus. We forget what he gave us. You forget what he continues to give you. Jesus didn't just give up all those things through his incarnation, through being born and suffering the way he did. He doesn't just give up stuff. He also gives us Blessings. He gives us his life and his love. When you do think about his death on the cross, he gave up his life in our place as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He gave himself for us. He gave his life for ours when he died on the cross. But he doesn't just give up his life in our place. He gives us his life. And this is incredibly important and something that many, many Christians miss. Many times we miss it. He didn't just give up his life. He gives us his life, his perfect life, the life that you and I aspire to but seem to fall short of every single time. He, he transfers the merits and the goodness of his life to our life, where if you've ever read a really compelling biography, you know, somebody that you admire, um, you know, maybe you read um, Unbroken, um, you know, um, Louis Zamperini, maybe uh, I remember reading The Monuments Men about uh, the folks who were trying to recover all the, and, and preserve the artistic treasures in Europe uh, during World War II and when the Nazis were trying to get all that, and the, the courage, the valor, the sacrifice of these men, you think, I want to be like that. That's who I want to be when I grow up. Well, Jesus transfers his biography to you. His history becomes your history. His goodness is transferred to you. The, the, the pleasure the, that God has in his son gets transferred to you through faith in his son so that his history becomes your history. His future becomes your future. So that when he was raised from the dead, when he was glorified, when he reigns, we think that's us in the future. I will be raised with him. I will be glorified with him. I will reign with him. Not like a despot, not like a Caesar, but like the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves well and rules with justice and who causes us to sing joy to the world. That kind of reign. His biography is your biography. Our condemnation became his condemnation. 
And he doesn't just give us his life and his love. He gives us hope and assurance. One who gave so much, the one who continues to give us so much, how can we not trust someone? How can you not trust somebody who's so giving? Why do we lose sight of that? Why can I not trust somebody who loves so well, who loves so completely? And how can I not... How can I not tell others about him and boast about him before others? How can I not follow him and obey him? How can I not love him and worship him? One who gave so much, one who continues to give us so much. Brothers and sisters, it's not that he stopped giving us anything. We just forgot we lose sight of what he's given us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to remember and to see clearly what Jesus gave us, the one who truly, actually, historically came and lived a life that is so far beyond our life, who took our place and was condemned in our place, And then gave us the merits of his life so that we might stand with faces turned up instead of down before your presence. Faces turned up in glory rather than turned down in shame and guilt. Lord, thank you that you continue to give us blessing after blessing. And everything we have, everything that we enjoy, everything that we take for granted is a gift from you and that you continue to keep on giving Lord, would you continue to show us more of the grace of Jesus? Would you bless us as a congregation this Christmas? Would you bless us, no matter where we've traveled from this Christmas, to be here together this day? And Lord, would you, in particular, uh, pour blessing on uh, these members of our church? We pray for Ron Rocca, that you would continue to shower gifts upon him. We pray for Danny and Cindy Rogers. Uh, for their children, Levi and Benjamin, their new children, Abigail and David and Samuel, and bless them, especially as they conclude their adoption procedures in Poland. Return them to us quickly and safely, we pray. We pray for Pete and Mindy Rodriguez and for Anna and Antonio, and pray that they are settled in back in Texas with family, uh, with new jobs, and we pray that you have provided a a new church for them where they are loved and can be loved. We pray for Brian and Marla Rogers, for their children Keith and Kimberly as well, and ask for you to continue to show them grace, continue to help them see your grace. Help us all to see your grace, to receive your grace. We now continue to worship with our tithes and offerings. We pray that you would find us joyful as we give these gifts. Find us receptive to your grace as we come to your table. We pray in Jesus' name.